Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. We have a guest today, Andrew Basevich, who um, recently wrote a terrific article, an important article on Tom Dispatch online and was reprinted on Alternate, may have been reprinted at other places, also partially quoted in a New York Times um, editorial recently. Hi, thanks for coming on. Well, glad to be with you. Uh, let me introduce you a bit to the listeners and we can go into this article that you wrote. Um, Andrew Basevich is a historian specializing in international relations, security studies, American foreign policy, and American diplomatic and military history. He's a former director of Boston University's Center for International Relations and professor emeritus of international relations and history at the Boston University Frederick S. Pardee School of Global Studies. 
He is also a retired career officer in the United States Army, retiring with the rank of colonel. His most recent book is America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. And that's fairly recent, obviously available wherever these books are available, Amazon, online, other places. Uh, the article that we're going to talk about originally appeared in Tom Dispatch, as I mentioned, and was reprinted on Alternet. Uh, the title I get here, I don't remember if it's Tom Dispatch's title or Alternet, is Autopilot Wars, 16 Years But Who's Counting? So let me just read the first couple of lines here, and then we can get into it. Consider, if you will, these two indisputable facts. First, the United States is today more or less permanently engaged in hostilities in not one faraway place, but at least seven. Second, the vast majority of the American people could not care less. Um, now, you started the article saying it's that we don't. It's not that we don't care because we don't know. Can you can you explain that? Well, I'm, I'm not sure how much explanation it <laughs> requires. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that if we stopped, uh, you know, 10 of our fellow citizens walking down the street uh, and asked them uh, if there is an ongoing war in Afghanistan involving the United States, they'd say yes. If we said, is there an ongoing war in Iraq that involves the United States, they'd say yes. If we asked them, hey, do you realize that uh, we've got, we're, we're periodically bombing Pakistan, and we got special operations forces raiding Somalia, uh, and the increasing numbers of U.S. forces in Africa. Mm. They might say no, although many would at, at the present moment uh, understand that we've got something going on in Niger. Uh, so my guess is that if we polled our fellow citizens, they may not have a detailed understanding of everywhere where we've got U.S. forces uh, in action, but they certainly would have an awareness that there are some places where we've got U.S. forces in action. And I think they'd also acknowledge that U.S. forces have been action, in action in some of these places for one heck of a long time. They may not be able to specify the date when the Afghanistan war began, but they know it's been a very long war. So I think it's, it's common knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's pretty indisputable, to say the truth. Um, so you, you also mentioned that uh, in your article that uh, the, uh, the United States Central Command um, uh, continually issues press releases. But who gets press releases besides the press? I mean, the public wouldn't know about that. So the press would. Have I think that's. I, I yeah. think that's fair enough. I mean, yeah. we, we, although although we live in the information age, in which again I would imagine the great majority of our fellow citizens these days have access to the internet they know how to uh, go to websites uh, but probably very few uh, go to the website of united states central command or of united states africa command mm -hmm. and therefore avail themselves of the information available which uh, which describes perhaps that doesn't give us a complete picture but at least gives a partial picture of, of what the heck is ongoing from day to day so Yes, there's information out there. No, uh, I suspect uh, not very many of us are, are sufficiently attuned to what's going on to want to seek that information. And there are reasons for that, which you uh, <clears throat> discuss in the article. I, I suppose uh, most Americans would not know that we're in um, the Ameri American military in one form or another, and maybe that includes the CIA, and mercenaries are involved in something like 170, I keep remembering, the number changes, 170 different countries? 
Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, that uh, that that much of that is uh, you know beneath the radar, uh, and and uh, although the mainstream media will from time to time uh, report on some of that activity, that reporting tends to be sporadic. Uh, and therefore, it doesn't sort of stick. It doesn't uh, resonate. I mean, if we if you would compare, maybe it's not a fair comparison. I don't know, but uh, if you would compare the coverage of the Harvey Weinstein hmm. uh, uh, debacle uh, to the coverage of American Wars, it seems to me pretty clear that in just about any uh, significant media outlet, the Harvey Weinstein story has gotten orders of magnitude more attention than than what we're doing in Niger or what we have been doing in Afghanistan. I'm not suggesting that that's appropriate or inappropriate. What I'm suggesting is that the kind of blanket coverage that um, the Harvey Weinstein scandal gets results in, it it, it ends up resonating, Mm -hmm. it ends up sticking, uh, and it ends up then eliciting some kind of of a larger response. You know, after, now that the Harvey Weinstein story comes out, uh, there, the appreciation, the public appreciation for the magnitude of sexual assaults and their frequency uh, is is obviously far, far greater than it was just six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And that we don't get that kind of coverage on U.S. military activities around the globe. And so people kind of know, they partly know, they're not quite sure if it matters all that much. Uh, and and therefore the wars get tuned out, and because the public tunes them out, <clears throat> then the political establishment also, perhaps not to a greater extent, but also tunes them out. I mean, it's really remarkable uh, that we have members of the United States Senate sort of slapping their foreheads and saying, holy cow, do we have troops in Niger? Hmm. I mean, we have members of the Senate Armed Services Committee who, who are, who are saying this uh, publicly. It's really quite astonishing. Well, there, uh, there's reasons for that, too. And you say it's the information age. The question is what kind of information, how often, and what people are choosing uh, to, to uh, imbibe. Uh, I think I, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, so, so the, to Senator Lindsey Graham, no doubt, could have known that we've got whatever it is, 800 uh, troops in Niger. Uh, but Lindsey Graham has only a certain amount of time in his day, and so he... Uh, sets his own priorities, uh, and one of those priorities is has not been what's U.S. Africa command up to these days. Um, um, another paragraph here: Why do Americans today show so little interest in the wars waged in their name and at least nominally on their behalf? Why, as our wars drag on and on, doesn't the disparity between effort expended and benefits accrued arouse more than passing curiosity? or mild expressions of dismay. Why, in short, don't we give a, and you have here, expletive, <laughs> expletive deleted, but why in, why in short don't we give a shit, let's say. Let's put that in. We could say that on a radio, on this radio station. And, um, yeah, I just want to read this, too, because it's, you know, posing, perhaps just posing such a question propels us instantly into the realm of the unanswerable, like trying to figure out why some people idolize Justin Bieber, shoot birds, or watch golf on television, or continue to vote for Donald Trump. I added that. Some. So maybe, uh, and then you have, uh, you make your points here about why Americans don't seem to care, or why this has become 
they become inured to all this. And uh, the first one you start out with is U.S. casualty rates are low. Well, they are. I mean, uh, one, one of the interesting uh, ways that our wars have evolved over, I would say, roughly the past uh, decade uh, is that the we've lost our appetite uh, for having large numbers of U.S. troops on the ground. When you have large numbers of U.S. troops on the ground engaged in combat, you're likely to have fairly significant U.S. casualties. So, so our approach to waging these wars has uh, de-emphasized boots on the ground in favor of uh, relying on proxies, uh, mercenaries, uh, indirect means of, of coercion, for example, uh, air power. Mm-hmm. And so the number of Americans who are being killed and injured, wounded, has dropped precipitously from what it was, let's say, back in you know, 2005, 2006, 2007. And you'll recall uh, that at that time, when the, when the main uh, arena of conflict was Iraq, and we had probably north of 100,000 troops on the ground in Iraq, you remember that at that time there was a significant uh, attention to mm-hmm. uh, how badly the Iraq war was going, so much so that in uh, 2006 the uh, Democrats were able to gain control of the Congress, in part because of their expressed opposition to the way uh, George W. Bush was handling the Iraq war. You recall that then Bush fired uh, Donald Rumsfeld as defense secretary and initiated a new, a, a new approach. Uh, so when U.S. casualties are high, there's a greater tendency for Americans to pay attention. If you keep U.S. casualties low, then in, in effect you're giving yourself a fairly free hand, meaning authorities, mm-hmm. military and political authorities, are gaining uh, uh, something of a free hand to, to continue the wars, just as long as they can make sure that, that most of the people being killed, and we're still killing a lot of people, that most of the people being killed are other than Americans. And I think that's one of the explanations for the absence of attention. Another one is, is the costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the costs are basically buried, ignored, uh, and, uh, and, and, and so the... Uh, continuation of wars doesn't have much of a direct impact on the way I'm living my life or or others are living their lives. It's not it's not causing me to tighten my belts because my taxes are going up in order to cover the costs of these of these wars. It's you know it's all just sort of put on the nation's tab uh, with the expectations that it'll be somebody else's problem to figure out how to how to pay the bills at some unspecified future date. Well, and that's also partly uh, Congress's problem, too, or fault, that they're not, uh, you know, I mean, it used to be a big, it used to be big news. Uh, I remember reading every once in a while for decades that when some huge, um, you know, um, uh, you know, weapon, you know, the F whatever it is, fighter or this nuclear yeah. power, whatever, when that when that went way over and costing, you know, billions of dollars more than it, it's supposed to, and it didn't even work. It was a big deal, but I don't see that so much anymore. I think you're right. I mean, the, the poster child uh, in that regard right now would be the F-35. I guess that's what I'm thinking uh, of. Yeah. Fighter bomber, uh, which is, I think I'm correct in stating, the most expensive, the most costly weapon system program in the history of the country. 
with huge uh, cost uh, overruns. Uh, and again, it's, it's not it's not that it's not that this is some kind of a great secret. It does get reported from time to time. It mm-hmm. does get discussed. I'm sure we could Google and find that members of Congress expressed their concern about the the mushrooming cost of the F-35. But somehow or other, as you suggested, it doesn't end up translating into action. It's a it's a certain amount of, of hand-wringing, and then, well, what the hell, uh, let's go ahead and spend the money and, 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 and keep this program alive. Why is that? Well, because, needless to say, the program uh, is uh, one that sustains the military-industrial complex. It, mm-hmm. keep, it keeps uh, major defense contractors in business and lesser defense contractors that, that, that provide parts and, and, and support, uh, and that's that's jobs, that's corporate profits, that's uh, contributions uh, to members of Congress that are uh, absolutely. appropriately supportive. Yeah. Um, point three you make here is that uh, American citizens have opted out, opted out. Um, that uh, Even so, you say, it bears repeating, the American people have defined their obligation to support the troops in the narrowest imaginable terms, ensuring above all that such support requires absolutely no sacrifice on their part. You know, I look at the ball games uh, and I look at, uh, you know, aside from Trump and uh, the Star Spangled Banner and the NFL, you know, uh, set that aside, but that's all part of it. Then you look at these things, you see flags that are, you know, a thousand, <laughs> a thousand feet square. You see uh, the singing of the Star Spangled Banner. You see military uh, members of the military out there uh, carrying the flag, salutes to our troops, hands over the hearts, um, military heroes, uh, and the, the announcers are all, you know, uh, are brave men and women, and that seems to be enough. That covers everything, right? That's, 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 I'm, I'm, this has been a hobby horse of mine for at least a decade, if not 15 years. Uh, and, and it, you know, I, I'm not the only one oh, no. uh, who's calling attention to what, what seems to be an exceedingly thin definition of of what citizenship or patriotism means you know it's mostly just gestures uh and uh, i'm almost i was almost embarrassed to mention this yet again in the article that you're referring to because it just seems like i'm just repeating myself and Mm. repeating everybody else but nonetheless um, i I think it deserves to be repeated because it is such an important uh, reality there there, there is no serious accountability uh, for the way our wars are conducted. There, there are gestures that suggest accountability. You know, there are hearings, there are, there's testimony, uh, but there's no accountability in the sense of demanding to know why uh, we don't achieve the results uh, that, that we intend to achieve. But we do have, by common admission, the strongest military in the entire world, maybe the best in all of history, uh, and yet we don't get the job done. And where's the evidence? Well, the evidence is right in front of us. The, as everybody knows, as everybody continually, or many people continually note, the Afghanistan war is the longest in our history. Uh, it's about to reach its, uh, what, 16th anniversary? Mm-hmm. I guess it has reached its 16th anniversary. Uh, and and even the people who are charged with conducting the war acknowledge that there is no end in sight, uh, that that the longest war in our history probably will continue for another decade or more. 
and and there is no the it's it's fascinating to me that the the new quote unquote strategy uh, is one that adds a handful of additional U.S. forces, promises more bombing, and basically is contingent on the belief that if we kill enough Taliban, that eventually the Taliban will say, oh well. I guess we might as well negotiate uh, an agreement that will end the war. Yeah, despite every, despite all the evidence to the contrary, over and over again for sixteen years. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. I mean, what, I mean, it's it's it, there is a logic to that expectation, uh, but the logic is not sustained by any evidence. And we have plenty of evidence available to us, so uh, it's just it, it's just astonishing. Well, it's a similar logic to uh, what I remember being of that generation of uh, about Vietnam. You know, if we well, drop, we, that's right. We, we the, 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 it, it is in effect a strategy of attrition, mm-hmm. uh, and that's using the term strategy very loosely. Uh, right. But the expectation that you can wear the other side down, uh, and certainly that expectation proved to be a great illusion uh, in Vietnam. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, why that expectation is going to be fulfilled in Afghanistan. I see no evidence to suggest oh, no. that if we just hang in there a little bit longer, uh, that, that somehow, you know, there will be light at the end of the tunnel, as they, as they used to say. And uh, considering that in, in modern America, or maybe in the modern world, everything happens now, and there is no such thing as before or history, uh, <laughs> you could easily, uh, I and mean, you know, you point that out too, and that's one of the points you make here, but you could easily just point to... Uh, simply to the British experience and to the uh, Russian, fairly Russian, fairly recent Russian experience there. I mean, well, you uh, know, because, you know. because we're Americans right, uh, right. and the assumptions of our uniqueness, uh, that provides an excuse not to take the historical experience of others all that seriously. I mean, it's sort of, you know, yeah, the Brits screwed it up and the Russians screwed it up, but we're Americans, and so uh, mm-hmm. those those lessons, those experiences somehow don't apply. And I think that that, that you know, that, that's one of those notions that's so deeply embedded, I think, in our collective psyche uh, that we're not even aware of it. Uh, but, but nonetheless, it's, it's very real. Um, also, you point out, and this is part of what we talked about before, and, um, uh, you know, it's something that's, uh, that's happening with almost every important thing. And now we have a president who is... Um, um, purely like a holograph of America's superficiality and lack of attention span. I mean, you say blather crowds a substance. I mean, there's just, um, there are too many people staring at too many devices, figuring out uh, what they're going to eat or taking pictures of themselves. Or I don't even know what people do on these things. I see them on the street in New York City. Everybody on the train, everybody on the street is staring at this stuff, well, I mean, with rigid attention. Meanwhile... We're bombing, you know, people all over the world. We're overthrowing governments, and our uh, our own government is turning into something resembling. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. That's really, you know, going too far. But it's 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 well on its way to becoming something that's um, um, a kind of a dictatorship in a way. You know, I mean, there's more and more power being assumed, and this has been going on for decades. But it's I'm I mean, not quite sure I agree with you on that, you but know, I certainly agree with you on the on the on the the point about you know what it means to live in an electron- electronic uh, age, mm. the way it just uh, we 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 willingly. I mean, it's not like somebody's making us spend all this time online, but we willingly uh, surrender uh, to this demand 
uh, for our attention, this claim on our attention. Uh, and, and, and it's a claim that then uh, emphasizes things that are superficial. Now, maybe, maybe we should be careful about not being nostalgic. I mean, back in the 1920s and the 1930s, when basically people read newspapers, subscribed to magazines, and listened to the radio, mm-hmm. uh, was, was access to information at that time more serious? Uh, hmm. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it wasn't. I mean, you know, when people read the local newspaper, maybe they spent all their time just poring over the baseball scores and uh, and and the latest news from Hollywood. But it seems like uh, things are becoming much more uh, superficial. Among other things, it just the, the 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 moment seems to allow less time for us as individuals simply to reflect. Mm-hmm. Who has time to reflect when you're constantly trying to keep up with your, you know, Twitter feed or, or whatever the case may <laughs> well, be? Well, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I mean, all, all the respect for the American public and, uh, you know, the wonderful freedoms that we have and, uh, and uh, the investment of the original founders and, uh, you know, the idea of a democracy and equality and everybody and uh, the hope for all this. We have a man in charge. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to be taught that George Washington was the father of the country. And there's some psychological remnant of that in every president, that he's really kind of the father figure. And uh, what do we have now is a father figure who tweets his opinions right. and his information, tweets. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, how many tens of millions of people are on Twitter? And he has followers, to use a certain word. It's a scary word. I mean, birds tweet. Right. I mean, I, but this just uh, opens me up to being uh, another generation here. Um, you mentioned uh, that uh, one of the points you're making here is that uh, there's an attitude in the country is anyway, the next president will save us. Well, I, I mean, I have come to believe that our our constitution has been perverted and it's been perverted uh, in, in ways that have invested uh, authority and influence in the president that is far beyond what the framers uh, anticipated. Mm-hmm. Where did this come from? This, I think this came out of uh, the sequence of events from the Depression to World War II to the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, a, 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 sequ- a sequence of events during which it seemed necessary to invest greater power and authority uh, in the president so that he could save us. Uh, and, you know, m- maybe there was some merit to that line of reasoning. Uh, but I think whatever merit there might once have been disappeared with the end of the Cold War. But in a sense, by then it was too late. Uh, and we've come to believe uh, that the, the, the president, whoever it is, is kind of a quasi-deity, mm-hmm. almost more king than, than first citizen. Uh, and, and some people objected to that uh, when, let's say, a Barack Obama was, was president, but not too many. Mm-hmm. It's only now that we have the, the president that we have that I think greater numbers of people have awakened, are awakening to the fact that uh, there, there's a distortion in our system of government that that is quite problematic. Now, whether or not that awareness is going to lead to any uh, 
you know, reversal uh, is pretty doubtful to me. I mean, one of my problems with the enormous obsession with Trump uh, is, and everything that he does, mm-hmm. is that it seems to imply that, golly, if we can just get rid of Trump, that all will be well. And I think that's, I think that's not, I think that's wrong. Uh, I think that there's a, in, in some respects, the phenomenon of Trump should alert us uh, to the need to take stock of of where 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 how our our political system has has evolved, uh, and and to ask the question: What do we need to do to 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 restore our democracy? Uh, to to somehow fix all that imparts paralysis, superficiality, uh, corruption mm-hmm. uh, to the way our system of government works, and and simply ejecting Donald Trump from the office, he holds, no, that not going to get that done. Uh, there's been an uh, increase in executive power through all sorts of parties and administrations ever since Roosevelt, uh, and it's a complicated issue, but it, it has been increasing and increasing, so it's way out of balance. The three branches of government are way out of balance now, I think. Uh, yeah, so, so I, think you, I think you stated it well. So the question then becomes, what are the actions that are required to restore the balance or the equilibrium? Uh, and and I don't see enough discussion of that because everybody is so hot and bothered about uh, about Trump himself. I understand why they're hot and bothered, uh, but it seems to me that it, it, it's important not to get fixated on a symptom uh, and therefore overlook the cause of the problem. I know your time is limited, but I, I wanted to uh, to make one other point, and this is uh, this is something that's been going on for a while here now. Uh, the idea. That uh, and you know that we have a volunteer army. I mean that the the, the notion came up somewhere in the late sixties, and I think right. by 1974, after the Vietnam War and the disaster of the Vietnam War, especially for the Defense Department, uh, with uh, people you know uh, seeing their sons come home in great numbers, you know, in coffins or disabled, mentally, physically disabled. Um, but uh, when a volunteer army was solidified, uh, volunteer, I should say, voluntary mi- military, it was around 1974. And I think that was the beginning of the end of the relationship, the close relationship or an understanding of the American public and its army. I mean, there was a, was it Douglas Brinkley who wrote a book or, or referred to citizen soldiers in World War II? But... Now, well, I don't know with Douglas Brinkley, but they were citizen soldiers yeah, in World War II, and they were right. citizen soldiers in World War One, and in the Civil War, the, the the foundation of the American military system mm-hmm. up through Vietnam was to to rely on the citizen soldier as the principal defender of the nation. That tradition collapsed in Vietnam. Out of as a result of that collapse, we got the so-called all-volunteer military, which is a professional military, and as you just suggested that produced the beginning of a great division uh, between the military and society that is camouflaged by all this support the troops, you know, hoo-ha mm. in ceremonies, uh, and has given us a military that, uh, has given us a military system that seems to me is inconsistent uh, with democratic principles uh, and is part of the problem that almost no one, uh, well, very few people are willing to acknowledge because the all-volunteer system, it doesn't work uh, 
but it but it it relieves citizens from obligations that they don't wish to uh, undertake and and very few members of Congress or the political class are willing to uh, acknowledge the negative consequences of that. I think it's a big problem. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, I have been railing against this for quite some time to absolutely no effect. Others do as well. Uh, but in, in, in an odd way, uh, in, in a way that very few people anticipated back, mm-hmm. back after Vietnam, uh, this military system of ours may well be in some respects, the root of the problem, or at least the place to begin finding a solution to this whole issue that we have been talking about for the last half hour. I'm afraid I'm going to have to run. Uh, no, I understand. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you've been listening to Andrew Basevich, and that's spelled B-A-S-E-V-I-T-C-H. I'm sorry. B-A-C-E-V-I-C-H. B-A-C-E-V-I-C-H. Okay. And uh, his most recent book is America's War for the Greater Middle East and Military History. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Um, <clears throat> one issue I wanted to, uh, to uh, cover with um, Professor Basevich here, uh, Colonel Basevich, was, uh, but he didn't have the time, but I wanted to talk about is, uh, with this whole thing with John Kelly, with the president making these condolence calls, and presidents have always made condolence calls to, uh, this goes all the way back to, uh, you know, I guess to the Civil War, when there's some famous letters that Lincoln, Lincoln wrote letters uh, frequently to, uh, to, the, uh, to the parents of people who lost, uh, you know, their sons uh, fighting in the Civil War. I'm not sure if Jefferson Davis did it for the South, but certainly we know about Lincoln writing these letters and one very, uh, very famous one where a woman lost something like four sons or all of her sons fighting in the Civil War. And uh, so from that time on, from these wars on, uh, presidents have, um, have written condolence letters and then with the advent of the telephone, and I suppose, um, uh, yeah, with the advent of the telephone, pe- presidents have from time to time called up uh, the, uh, the parents of, uh, of uh, soldiers who have been killed in combat, uh, American military, uh, you know, veterans, um, um, and people who have been killed in combat, they call up the parents and they express condolence. So Trump, of course, in his tone-deaf, insensitive way, uh, has been doing this, I don't know how often, on and off, and... Um, he came across somebody, uh, and everybody's been reading about this. You're familiar with this story. Came across a woman whose husband uh, was killed, and I think was it in Afghanistan or was it, was it in Iraq? I don't really know. But he, ex- you know, he said he gave his um, gave his condolences to this woman, and uh, you know the rest of the story. It turned out there was a Democratic Congresswoman who was a close friend of this woman, uh, the wife of the man that was killed. Uh, sitting in the car, and apparently this uh, this condolence call came over a speakerphone, and Trump sounded his usual. You know, he didn't know the guy's name, and then he said something like, um, "Well, he knew your your guy knew what he signed up for," which was Trump's way. He had heard this from somebody else. He heard this from John Kelly, who was his chief of staff and an ex Marine Corps four star general, and um, Kelly heard this. Kelly lost a son fighting, and I forget it was either in Iraq or Afghanistan, and um, uh, a, uh, 
a colleague, a fellow general, called up to give Kelly the news at the time his son was killed and said something like, uh, according to what I've read, uh, well, you know, your boy knew what he signed up for. You knew what he was in for. So Trump repeated this. But, of course, the context is all wrong, and it's completely different. And he's got, he, didn't know, he didn't know the man's name, didn't know the woman's husband's name. And the, the congresswoman, the woman got very angry. The congresswoman uh, reported all this. There was a tremendous back and forth between. And then Trump, of course, which he does all the time with everybody, laid it off on Obama and or somebody else. He blames somebody else. It's the first thing he does, right? And he said, well, Obama never made these calls or whatever. And some lie, some incredible lie. And um, then Kelly got dragged into it. Here's Kelly, John Kelly, you know, ex-Marine Corps uh, general, uh, who came into the White House and everybody expected him to have some control over the, uh, the insane asylum there. But he hasn't been doing too well. Then he gets involved and starts accusing, you know, this petty crap that goes on. He accuses this congresswoman, this Democratic congresswoman from Florida, of, um, <clears throat> of lying about something else. But then, you know, it just it escalates into a whole crazy petty war. And um, then Kelly started talking about, during these press conferences, he started talking about, um, about the military. And it was, it's been pointed out, and as my guest, um, Andrew Basevich, mentioned, that um, only 1%, only 1% of the entire country's population is serving in the military, and maybe even less than 1%. And it's a volunteer army. They are unto themselves. The commander-in-chief of the, United, uh, of, uh, the, commander in chief of, the of the armed forces of the United States, the president, has control over uh, the most um, awesome, the most overpowering, the most dangerous, the most widespread um, um, military in history. You know, all these weapons, all these modern, all this modern technology, we have uh, uh, troops, uh, soldiers, uh, Air Force, uh, Navy, whatever, Marines, special forces, uh, the CIA, mercenaries, mercenaries, really? You know, back to our own history, it was mercenaries, the, the British who were spread all over the world with their imperialism and their colonies, um, imported uh, German mercenaries, Hessians, to fight in our Revolutionary War. And they couldn't care less. They were being paid to do it. They were professional soldiers. And they were particularly vicious. There was no ideology involved at all. They were being paid to do that. The next time that pops up in American history is in, um, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mercenaries, where we pay uh, firms like Blackwater and other places... Um, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe billions of dollars to do our fighting for us. And we have a volunteer army. We don't know what goes on. Uh, and most of Americans don't care what goes on because it's not our families. It's this small, tiny group of volunteers who have made a profession out of this. And um, uh, so Kelly gets involved in this and he's a product of this too. You know, he says, uh, uh, he pointed out that... Uh, Americans don't seem to care. There's a huge gap between those who are serving and fighting and dying for their country, and I'm paraphrasing. And um, he starts uh, talking in a way, sort of a patronizing way, and he said, we don't look down upon those of you who haven't served. But he does. But he does. And then he said, in fact, in a way, we're a little bit sorry because you'll never have experienced the wonderful joy you get in your heart 
joy in your heart when you do the kinds of things our servicemen and women do? Well, I don't know about that. But, uh, and, and I'm reading here from an uh, editorial in the New York Times. Implicit in his remarks, that's Kelly, if you cannot grasp instinctively what the military goes through, you may well have forfeited the right to criticize it. The point was made explicit by Sarah Huckabee Sanders. What planet is she from? Can you, what goes on in this woman's mind? Jesus, what an ass-kissing... Oh, man. Anyhow, the point was made explicit by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, when she called it highly inappropriate to get into a debate with a four-star Marine general. In other words, the press was criticizing. The press was criticizing John Kelly. And it's come to the point where there's such a huge gap between our military and our public that we don't know where they're fighting. We don't seem to care in general. I'm not saying the people who are listening to this show, but most Americans don't seem to care one way or the other. Let them drop their bombs. Let them hire mercenaries to murder people. Let them blow people up. Let them, uh, let, let's, uh, let's give all of our, uh, our jets and planes to the Saudis so they can destroy Yemen and blow people up there and murder people. All over the world, we supply weapons. to uh, Half the weapons in the world come from the United States. So America is the great merchant of death, and uh, our troops are all over the place, our CIA, our mercenaries, our special forces everywhere. Some of these places are places where terrorists and terrorist, um, uh, you know, huge terrorist armies uh, who are just the most vile people on earth are, are, are ruining various countries in Africa and in the Middle East and other places. And so the American army is sent there, or the American military in one form or another, or CIA, which is getting more involved now with, uh, with fighting, are sent there to support uh, you know, the uh, legitimately elected governments, of which there are fewer and fewer anywhere, <laughs> uh, if you look at the thing. It's really awful. But uh, yeah, in some cases, the fighting that we're doing it may be justified, may be justified. But people don't know about it. And so when Kelly says that uh, we don't look down upon you, who uh, those of you who haven't served, but he really does, whose fault is that? Where did this all start? Well, like we talked about before, when we finally had a volunteer army, after Vietnam, people got sick to death of what we were doing in the name of democracy and uh, American values, quote unquote, and American ideals. When it became more and more obvious that we were fighting a losing war against people who were just fighting for their own country. We, they, these people were just doing the same thing we were doing in 1776. We had a revolutionary war against an imperialistic, um, you know, uh, tyrant and uh, that was imposing its will on everybody and, uh, you know, suspending laws, doing whatever they wanted to people, killing people, locking people up taking taxes without even asking anybody. So we declared uh, our independence, and we had this, uh, we had our Revolutionary War, the great glorious Revolutionary War, and it was. And then, but later on in our history, we become the imperialistic power, and we're fighting the Vietnamese, and they're just fighting for their own, uh, for their own freedom. Uh, you know, yes, it's complicated, of course, who is backing them, what their freedom consisted of. But they were um, they were, you know, native to their own country, fighting first uh, the French for, you know, 100 years and then fighting uh, the Americans who took over for for the French. And um, but during Vietnam, 
as most of you will remember, and the, those of you who don't, uh, something like 54,000, I don't know, maybe closer to the numbers, uh, 54,000 American um, <clears throat> uh, combat uh, effectives, you know, um, Marines and, um, and Army troops, 54,000 were killed fighting that war. Something like a million or more Vietnamese were killed, and a lot of them civilians, too. Um, something like 54,000 were killed, and uh, uh, hundreds of thousands came back from service in that war, um, damaged mentally, uh, you know, PTSD, uh, disabled in some way that, uh, that um, you know, that informed or in some cases ruined the rest of their lives. And people saw this. People saw this. So Vietnam <clears throat> was a disaster. And it was during that time, starting in 1968, that the Defense Department and the president and other people came up with the idea of, you know, we don't have to go through all this. We don't have to worry about the public and their opinion about the wars that we're fighting in their name. We can get away with anything we want if we have a volunteer army. And uh, if we're shrewd about this and we use uh, more weapons and less troops on the ground, we don't suffer as many casualties. Um, and so we have an army that John Kelly is referring to. And he's saying, you know, Americans should be, should be honoring our troops and, uh, and should be more aware of what, uh, what is going on with them. Well, uh, we're not for all sorts of reasons, but one is because of the Defense Department and the military and uh, various politicians and various leaders of our country um, allowed this military to become a private enterprise, a private enterprise, a career all in itself. A money-making, um, a money-making um, enterprise for um, for the worst sorts of mercenary organizations. So, um, uh, and what happens there is, and then Sarah Huckabee Sanders says she's talking to a bunch of people, and people were criticizing Kelly for his stand on all this stuff. She says to them, "You know, um, <clears throat> where's 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 the quote? Uh, I forget. Well, let's see, where's the quote?" She says, oh, it's highly inappropriate to get into a debate with a four-star Marine general. Oh, really? When we can't criticize our military, when we can't criticize our generals who work for us, it was made explicit since the beginning of the country. The founders of this country made it very, very clear in, in word and deed that the military works for the American public and not the other way around. We don't serve the president. The president is supposed to serve us. Things have gotten very, very bad. They've turned completely in the other direction, completely in the other direction. And uh, now we have, and as I say, this has been going on uh, since uh, World War II, and for various reasons, that we have an executive that's way out of control. We have a military that uh, nobody gets to say anything about, including people in Congress, and they, they, uh, you know, they don't, you know, assume responsibility for what the military is doing. They don't even know, and they are our representatives. So what we've got is a closer approximation to the people we were fighting during the Revolutionary War, right? How much did the British public really know or care about what was going on all over the British uh, Empire with its colonies? I mean, money was rolling in. They were a rich country, and um, they probably didn't even care that much, except to rah, 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 wave the flag over there. But um, once you start having an army that is not uh, conscripted, that there's no draft, when 
when the majority of the American public uh, doesn't have to worry uh, ever about its um, children being killed or wounded in a war, uh, and the president has complete control over wherever he sends these people, and even our representatives don't know it, then what you have is a, a, a sheer recipe for a dictatorship, a sheer recipe for a dictatorship, and that's what we're running into here. And not only that, I mean, uh, that's buttressed by all this stuff about, um, about uh, you know, Trump uh, and, his, um, and his Republican Party terrorizing regular Republicans, right? Now the Republicans are all turning and running, uh, running away. They're all cashing in. They're all getting, I mean, there's a couple of brave Republican senators and maybe one or two congressmen, congresspeople, but um, that's it. That's it. There's, uh, everybody is turning and they're, uh, they're going his way. Everybody's going along with him. Lindsey Graham, who used to criticize him all the time, rightfully, is now riding around with him and he's the president's best buddy. This is what we've got. This is what we've got now. We've got uh, a Republican Party that is now uh, knuckling under to this uh, tyrannical son of a bitch. And um, it does not look good for democracy. It really doesn't look good for democracy. Meanwhile, everybody is looking at their, um, everybody's looking at their iPad and everybody's looking at their phone and everybody is sending texts and tweets. And um, we are at war all over the world and who cares? All right, that's enough for this uh, for this week. Um, uh, why don't we uh, let's see? Let's go to uh, down in the hole. Got that there? Let's go. Let's have that. You have been listening to The Turning Point with Mike Fader. That's me. If you want to get in touch with me, uh, you can go to my website, FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com. Halloween is almost upon us, but uh, Halloween is sort of an old-fashioned, quaint uh, thing right now. uh, There's nothing scary about Halloween anymore, especially when you... uh, 
when you look at what's really scary. <laughs> what's really scary is that Trump is president and well on his way to becoming a kind of a dictator. Even if he didn't want to be, he's becoming that. That's what's really scary. And everything he and these uh, cowardly Republicans are doing, that's what's really scary. As far as Halloween goes, I was just coming, I was on 37th Street coming up to the, uh, on the street, coming up to the uh, station. And walking down the street on 37th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue is a velociraptor. Some guy dressed up uh, completely in inflatable uh, velociraptor, about six foot tall velociraptor outfit, prancing down the street. He was a very happy velociraptor. And um, I guess it's a typical New York story. People are, the garment center where we are is really crowded and everybody's uh, very busy. Um, and uh, has basically, you know, is trying to, you know, uh, hurrying on their way to a job or trying to avoid all the noise or trouble. The Velociraptor is walking down 37th Street, and I swear to God, nobody was paying any attention to it. There it is, right on the street. Maybe if it was a real one, that would have caused some disturbance, but uh, it was no problem at all. No problem at all. So Velociraptors are walking the streets of Manhattan in anticipation of Halloween, Meanwhile, we should really look at what's really scary. What can we do about it? I don't know. I don't know. The Republicans are, have become cowardly. They're terrified of the president. They're afraid they'll lose their jobs. People are speaking out, but hardly enough. And the Democrats, where are they? I don't know. Who are they? I don't even know. Uh, anyhow, I will uh, be back next week. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. that running i wanted to make one correction um uh, unfortunately unfortunately i uh, mispronounced my guest's name and i feel really bad about that uh, and you should know this guy is a really terrific writer and a really uh important man to pay attention to and his name is andrew j basevich b-a-c-e-v-i-c-h i spelled his name wrong earlier when i was talking to him b-a-c-e-v-i-c-h and check out uh, any article that you see he's written. Uh, the latest one is called America's Autopilot Wars. Somewhere down the road when somebody plays At the end of the line Purple haze